0: Hi, I'm here with Charlie Dyst, who's a, a regular part of the Wear Beauty podcast. Great to see you again, Charlie. Hey, David. <laughs> um, and and as you can see, when if you're watching, uh, Charlie isn't in the courtyard at St Jerome's with me. We're right in the middle of uh, the lockdown, the shelter at home, in place. It's called Shelter in Place. Um, and what sparked this off is I just received a, a very interesting mailing. I'm on Charlie's mailing list, and it was about his personal response to what's going on. Uh, some of the themes that we've talked about in the past, but what I thought was particularly interesting was um, Charlie's description of how that this is likely that... what we're facing is likely to institute changes right the way up to government I think that everybody's having to get uh, to do things they haven't done before and the tendency might be for the growth of government the growth of big business um, at the expense of the small players Um, and um, what Charlie Charlie is describing this you have a background in economics Charlie so you, you know what you're talking about there I think um but
1: really, well, I don't know about
0: that, but well, you know more than me. this was it like that, and you impressed me so uh I, I would say that what you say makes sense. the same sort of things actually has occurred to me so um, I want to make that point, but that isn't the main thrust of what you 're describing um, as I read it you're talking about even if that is the worst case scenario that that, that we come out of this very badly um in terms of centralization, more centralization. Uh, There are personal responses that we can make that um, counter that at a local level and and, um, involve us establishing communities. And first of all, I thought many of the things you said were great ideas, so we'll talk about those. But also what occurred to me is that they're all in harmony with the spiritual life and the Christian life. And so they, they could be the sort of things that a parish could organise that would be very different from the sort of thing parishes normally do and might help to build up community um, with the spiritual life and the liturgy as, as the at the core of this, at the heart of this. But um, they, they could be done. And furthermore, you don't need lots of facilities. It's about organising people to do things together. Um, so... Charlie, first of all, I just like to hear your reaction to my summary and, and tell me if I've if it's fair, and then just allow you just to talk a little bit about your ideas and um, where where they think that how they might develop um, in the next two, three, four months, for example.
1: Sure, the kinds of questions people are asking, I think, center around what is the government going to do next? What will be the response? what will this return to normal look like, or will we ever return to normal? And I think that that's kind of the wrong question in that where we go ultimately isn't the decision of the federal government. Uh, You know, to some extent it will be the states and local governments, but mostly it's communities, families, and individuals who are going to decide how they go out and spend their time spend their money. Uh, And there are certain trends that, that, we can see are maybe being forced or or guided by the the larger powers that be. And I think that on the whole, you know, some of these, w- whether they're, uh, you know, effective or, or not, they do speak to a, a fragility that we've had for a lot longer and that the coronavirus epidemic has only revealed to us in starker terms. So for example, the, the tendency of uh, centralization and especially with respect to our mm. food supplies. Uh, Congressman Thomas Massey from Kentucky is pointing out that we might have food shortages of a particular kind. Uh, it's you know, sorry to disappoint all the the bacon and pork lovers out there, but it turns out that we really only have uh, a few meatpacking plants in the country, uh, and those are being affected by the, the shutdown. And so we might see shortages of of those things at the grocery store. Uh, Now, luckily, as you know, David, because I keep some of my uh, quarter cows in the deep freezer there at the the convent where you live, uh, there, I get my meat from a a local source, a rancher up in Santa Rosa, who has, uh, you know, a few hundred head of cattle and uh, she sells sort of wholesale, but also smaller cuts. So this is just one way that we can decentralize our own personal economy, make it more robust and resilient to what I see as a growing sort of centralization that has a little bit to do with government, but it's also just the the way of uh, least resistance in a sense. Yeah. I, actually, I, otherwise go out and look for it.
0: Yeah. I, I, I love this point. Um, my I'm less concerned about the food than you are. I'm not thinking about it so deep. I, um, but what really interests me in this is the effect that these huge food producers have had on the landscape. Um, as someone who loves um, the beauty of the a, a rural uh, environment, and just likes to be in it. I, I'm not particularly interested in farming it, but I like to see it farmed beautifully. Um, and the, these big producers that you described don't do that. Uh, and I'm not sure they produce the best food. You, uh, people like you tell me that it's that's the case. And that actually there is a way to change that for all the subsidies and the, 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 the fact that these producers are connected to government so uh, directly in many ways, Um, through subsidization packages, there's a lot of politics involved. I don't know the the details, but I know that much, that we can change the demand if we wish, Uh, and ultimately that will change things. So incidentally, you refer to the the lady who gave you the beef, and uh, she's a rancher called Heather, uh, you say. Do you know how she's doing at the moment, by the way? Is she she selling food still? She
1: is. And she's had uh, her usual kind of, she does, no longer does farmer's markets, but uh, she sells out of a a space on her ranch. And I think that they were, you know, decontaminating all of the the plastic wrapped cuts of meat before handing them out. And they had the safety procedures, but uh, I think that she's, she's doing all right. And I, don't know that business is necessarily booming just because i think people still by and large are opting for the convenience of the grocery store Uh, and certainly i wouldn't find it worthwhile to drive all the way up to santa rosa it's about an hour hour and a half drive depending on traffic um, Mm. to get just a few cuts of meat but when it comes to buying in bulk or if you could set up these checkpoints or, or places within the urban areas where people can pick these up. And this model does already exist to some extent with community supported agriculture. You can look up CSAs in your area for both produce and meat, and it's marked up a little bit, but I think that this is a good opportunity for groups of people, uh, you know, clusters of families and friends who say, hey, this makes sense, I'll make the run. I'm gonna get a, a quarter of a cow, you know, that's something like 250 pounds. And that'll last our community for the next two or three months. And um, we can divvy it up, get a variety of cuts. It's grass fed instead of grain fed. So you know, think of uh, the the sort of the the granaries of of Pharaohs Egypt, which uh, become kind of contaminated with toxic mold as they lay in these grain silos for long periods of time. This is actually, you know, you can look this up. That uh, that the, there are toxic molds. Uh, we don't even know all the different kinds, but uh, but they they form in the the production line of, uh, of of the grains that make up the basis of the modern food pyramid, and so grass-fed beef. One, it, it sort of circumvents this problem of toxic mold, uh, and it also is just a, a more natural diet for the cows themselves, and leads to a, a healthier cut of meat, mm. higher in omega threes. Uh, which is sort of the the ratio of I won't get too, too deep into the weeds, but basically the you want a higher ratio of omega three to omega six. Otherwise, you can get some uh, more inflammation uh, if your diet is too heavy in omega sixes. Uh, but but to uh, to go back to just the 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 point of kind of the land and how the beauty of the land is a, a mirror in a way of yes. uh, the the health of the food supply. Um, I, I think that you can also point to just the the whole sort of um, monocrop, monoculture production system being one that's it's more fragile. Meaning, if you have some sort of uh, pest that is particularly problematic in one year, it can wipe out the entire crop. Versus, if you're planting many different kinds of crops, uh, it also tends to erode the soils more quickly. And so we're we're incurring all of these invisible costs that only show up in a time of the kind of tail end of the probability curve. Uh, Something like a coronavirus, but in agriculture. So I think that again, this just reveals existing Mm -hmm. fractures, uh, making them more obvious, but we'll see other ones in time. This is
0: not going to be the only uh, big event. And I think a point here, and again, I'm open to correction from you, is that um, it takes a lot of work between government and these big suppliers to maintain themselves. Basically, they need regulation and law to cut out these small producers. And if you let things just happen and people choose what they wanted, um, you're much more likely to get the sort of things you're describing happening. Um, right. It's called
1: regulatory capture.
0: Okay. okay. Good. There's even a word for it. Um, yeah. The,
1: the big firms get together and write the legislation and it, it puts out the smaller competition uh, and sort of ensures a corner on the market. But um, the in the case of, of meat production, I think it's interesting that the the bottleneck comes from the the meat packing plants and the slaughterhouses. So here in Northern California, we think have maybe one remaining slaughterhouse and all of the local organic and grass fed producers have to go through that one. Uh, So this is actually one of the constraints and it's not uh, necessarily a a pretty business and I certainly wouldn't wanna be the one to to spearhead the next slaughterhouse. But uh, I do think that when when you lean too much on uh, a regulatory framework, you get a bunch of big players that have the budgets to be able to comply with a lot of regulations that might not even ultimately contribute all that much to the health and safety uh, and how humanely the the animals are slaughtered um, you just have the sort of economies of scale that allow it to be done with all of the boxes being checked
0: mm. and for the uh where does sort of catholic social teaching come in is there is there any reference this well what occurs to me is that that's really the principle of subsidiarity um, is important that you uh, certainly at a political level you want uh the um, power pushed down to the local level as far as possible and one of the things about um the economic system uh, that's called distributism uh that i do like is that they propose that that's a good thing as well you want as much locally based um business and in terms of agriculture locally based produce as possible um and it seems that the, the question that though that people disagree on is how do you achieve that um and broadly speaking it seems to me the answer is stop preventing it happen mm-hmm. <laughs> it, That it would actually happen naturally if you just let it um, you don't need to have laws enforcing subsidiarity you just need to remove the laws that stop is happening anyway is that fair do you think
1: right and of course it's easier said than done in a way yeah. we have to consider politics within this framework of uh, i like the public choice uh, frame around james buchanan one of the, the pioneers of public choice theory calls it politics without romance so we might think that we can create policy Within a vacuum, or uh, you know, basically just project all of our ideals onto uh, the preferred policies that we'd like to see without considering how all of the various economic actors, which include people in government, uh, people in government, these, these are the sort of public component of public choice, face the same incentives as uh, people in a in a marketplace with respect to protecting their reputation uh growing the the budget and the bottom line for their agency so you do have a sort of gravity at work an economic gravity that is centralizing power in the hands of uh the the agencies in concert with the big business so hilaire Bellick, uh didn't have access to all of the, the insights of, of public choice but i think that as a, a leading distributist he still kind of intuited that we end up with uh, an unstable equilibrium in a in a capitalist system, um, and I'm not against capitalism, uh, and I think that you know the the market, uh, rightly construed, or or the free economy rightly construed, is uh, the direction that we need to move. But the Hilaire Bellick's point was that capitalism is an unsustainable equilibrium; it tends to tip in the, in the direction of capture by uh, cronyism or uh, or in the other direction of a sort of socialism
0: yes and it it, it takes firm uh, the firm hand of government in a way to, to not to succumb to that temptation that uh, that it, it needs strong figures who know how to restrain it and that's the that is the that that is the weakness of of our arguments that there aren't many of those figures around. But um, so. that's
1: that's actually an interesting point, and I, I've tended to think of you know a republican form of government not as in the political party, but the the idea of you know the uh, representative democracy where you don't necessarily need any strong uh, figurehead, but um, I do think that this is an area where I've evolved a little bit toward thinking that, you know, there is a balance and, uh, to be able to have a, a strong enough government that you can restrain the, I don't want to call it the excesses because that's just a cliche, but to restrain the the underlying dynamics of crony capitalism. Mm. That's interesting. I would like to explore that. I mean, who, do you think that this is played out uh, at any times or places where we can say that's a good model for?
0: Um, well, I think the, the I, I don't know. I I, I I tend to work in idealistic form, but that, that I am, um, the way that I characterize what you're describing is that I do think, I do see a role for government and, I, and there's very few who'd say we have we shouldn't have any government at all but I do see a, an active role in regulating to protect personal freedom which is what I think I'm describing and that means therefore that sometimes it does need positive law in order to protect individual rights now that can go way wrong we, we've seen how the, the language of human rights can be that can distort things hugely. Uh, but I think it needs that. And it what it needs is really a deep understanding of human nature and what human freedom is. Um, and then you've got a chance. But it's not something that you can just eliminate. You can't just eliminate government and then expect things to develop. It, there's a vital role here, and government can be done well or badly. Um, but, uh, I, I agree. I, th- I think that especially among
1: libertarians, you tend to have a lot of hand waving about the, the spontaneous order, but politics is kind of nested within that spontaneous order, and there isn't a layer of human decision making. Uh, there's a, a writer who writes a lot about the administrative state named John Marini, and he talks about there being a kind of unmanly contempt for politics among mostly, I think, conservatives and libertarians. People who follow a H L. Mencken sort of mindset of this utter contempt for politicians in, in all forms that you know the politician is the the scum of the earth. But I think in previous times there was an idea of statesmanship as a very noble pursuit, and that might be something worth recovering. And I don't really write about that in my article on the Covid nineteen reset because I'm mostly focused on, how we can have just purely bottom-up solutions from our community. But I do think that the, the task for statesmen is to figure out you know, where can we apply uh, discretion and, and you know, judiciously write the laws to create institutions and a, a framework for markets to, to produce the, yeah. the ideal level of competition.
0: That's right. I don't see governments providing the solution, but I do think that they they have a, a very very strong supportive role uh, in the right situation, which allows, as you say, the markets and communities. It's more than just simply economics. It's about people doing what's right and good at a personal level, in accordance with human freedom, and then then you get you do see a spontaneous order. I think you. Something emerges through the. That's company. a lot of
1: hand waving, David. No. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, yeah. Sorry about that.
1: No, wow. no, it but does. That's... It does. Yeah. And when you have good laws and and good lawmakers, I think Thomas Massey is a good example. He just introduced a bill that, uh, might be getting this imprecisely worded, but I think that it will allow uh, meatpacking plants to sell. Uh, Sort of individual cuts directly to the consumer. There, there's some idea of, uh, you know, using, rewriting the laws in order to mm. you know, eliminate some of the, the red tape and the bureaucracy. But he has to pass a law to do that. So sometimes you can use the law to cut through that that thicket of.
0: Yeah, uh, and, uh, especially in the American system where if laws are passed, it seems to happen so rarely because you need all these different aspects of the american government system to come into agreement and um uh, which is different from the british system which i'm used to things laws can be passed and reversed and uh, much more easily Uh, it's less frustrating for the politicians uh but in the american system the the the, you could introduce laws which protect things and that they're less likely to be reversed um, now that that works well with the same applies to bad laws as good laws, but uh, it's down. That's you know you just have to uh, work within the political system. But I I think that the, there are possibilities there. I, I I'm hoping that what's going on at the moment is that uh, they're planning that there is an end game to this situation. Somebody's got some idea of what the criteria are that dictate when we come out of it and they've got some idea of how we come out of it um there's not much talk about that and uh, that's what's worried me right from the beginning when we go into it to be honest Uh, i've always worried about situations where you go in without clearly defined criteria as to when you decide to come out but i'm um, hopeful that maybe given some of the tendencies of the current administration perhaps they're preparing in some way to allow that to happen they're using this as an opportunity we'll have to wait and see
1: yeah i think you're right about needing to be clear about some sort of benchmarks that we'll know when we hit them just that we don't have this indefinite dragging on and you know businesses need to form their plans based on expectations and that's another concept from um, e- economics of the last fifty years or so, where we've we've discovered just how key those expectations are, um, and if you have regulatory uncertainty, then it creates this whole milieu of well, I don't want to invest because I'm going to wait and see. And I think that this administration has been good in terms of being very clear about what the regulations uh, are, and that even if you have regulation, it, it uh, allows for investment based around something that you know will be the law for for some time to come mm. uh, but on that uh on that same sort of thread uh, of uh, the not the not the regulatory uncertainty um i i just oh i wanted to to go back to the uh, the article that i wrote where i um talked about i'm, I'm losing my train of thought uh maybe you can
0: can jump okay. in. I, well, I, I th- I'm wondering whether we've um, probably reached an end on this topic, which wasn't one we planned to go to <laughs> at the beginning anyway, although I'm, I, it's extreme, I, I'm really interested by the, what you had to say there. Why don't we go back to some more of these personal responses to the current situation? So one was uh, we began the last tr- train of discussion with consideration of where you buy your meat from and where you buy your food from. But you talk about responses involving just exercise and other great interest of yours and how this might be an opportunity for people to get out and form community I, i'm I'm sensing even in the current environment this is the way that uh, I mean where can you meet people it's only outside at the moment uh, you have and obviously six feet apart but that's what I'm doing I'm going for walks and I'm meeting people at the trailhead and going walking and that's what that's the social activity at the moment. So uh, perhaps can you speak to that a little bit, and and especially with um, with your sort of natural movement interests and how the, the ideas you've had there.
1: Yeah, I spend a lot of time at parks and outdoors uh, where I do my natural movement practice, which involves uh, imitating in some ways the the movements of primitive. Humans. Um, it was developed as a, a way to uh, encapsulate the the fitness that was observed on uh, different islands where the people had been relatively untouched by civilization. Uh, but in spite of that, you know, you might think that they would be that that our modernity would give us the tools to become uh, more fit. But in fact, we see that. People are using the the comfort of modern life as an excuse not to move. Uh, So we've we've lost this physical culture that is embedded in every pre-modern society. uh, And natural movement is one way to reclaim it, but it's uh, by no means the only way. You can, of course, go to any number of of gyms, not right now. Uh, But I think that the advantage of natural movement one is that it's sort of general and holistic it doesn't focus on these isolated exercises two it takes place mostly outdoors and so you get the added benefits of sunlight vitamin D the fresh air uh, the open air factor which we don't know exactly what this is but uh, during the the Spanish flu epidemic it was noted that patients who uh, were the sort of overflow from the hospital and had to be put on uh, on cots outdoors tended to recover faster than the people indoors. Uh, So there there are all these benefits of being closer to the elements. Many elements also function as uh, what I refer to as hormetic stressors. This is a a theme from my newsletter uh, with the natural method that the right dose of uh, a given stress can be healthy, whereas uh, too high of a dose or no dose at all is unhealthy or even fatal so you can run through sunlight too much of it you might get skin cancer not enough uh, and you develop all kinds of problems it it interferes with your sleep Uh, cold water too much you get hypothermia but if you never expose yourself to cold water then you end up being as a more sort of fragile um, and and less resilient with respect to heat and cold Uh, so in all these areas nature you know, it's almost its as if we're—we're we're designed to live close to nature. Can you imagine such a, a crazy thing? <laughs> but i have seen more people out yeah. at the parks in this period yeah. than I have in the previous years. So that's promising. Yesterday, there were even some kids that were swimming in the spot where I almost never see people uh, go swimming, and and so
0: okay, very heartening. Now, here's the yeah. Now, here's the thing that occurred to me when um, I—I've I, been talking to a a priest father john who we both know i I won't give his second name at the moment but um he we've been talking about how we can regenerate parish life and make and that what's occurred to us in, in in our discussions and this this just began as idle conversation in a way um was that he would um, point out places now i think in san francisco it's it's called something like the sanctuary but it, it's people are familiar with these places so they are um subscription businesses uh their market um is largely uh women with children so they they're people who are at home um and quite well to do clearly i mean the subscription very uh, nice looking place where there is a crash, but then they offer things like exercise, yoga, meditation, a spa, all sorts of, um, a a cafe, which offers a lot of sort of health food and vegetarian food, a very nice coffee shop, um, lots of meditation, I I don't know if I mentioned that, and um, really, you don't need a very plush premises in order to do those things and we can do them in accord with the the Christian life Um, and it's something that a parish could organize and what you're describing for example could take the place of the yoga and the exercise, we can offer meditation, Christian contemplative prayer, Um, we can teach people about nutrition when when has that ever happened at a at a parish where for those who are interested they can get involved in this sort of thing for the nourishment of body soul and spirit um and you don't need plush a lot of very expensive facilities these these are things that people can choose to do if they're if they're given the freedom to do so and they know what to do um so and I think that what you're describing, I, this is what jumped out at me at the newsletter you sent, that, that you're describing all the sort of activities that could be done in a Christian context, and you're attacking this idea that we have to have a gym or a very expensive club to join. These are things that people can choose to do uh, very easily if they know what to do. So,
1: Yeah, I think the... Um... The, the the Latin phrase uh, "corruptio optimi pessimi, is coming to mind. The corruption of the best is the worst, and I do think that the the model of Christian community, uh, in some ways, that example that you're describing. I, d- I don't want to knock on it too hard because I do think that for some people that could be a, a really valuable yep. missing component from from their life. But I think that it does fall short of what community can and should be and the sort of consumption model of community could be contrasted with the model of the parish that we've talked about where it's really more about you know what am i contributing uh to my community and then centered around liturgy and and the uh sort of worship that is due to god instead it becomes this sort of self-centered cult of uh of of almost a, a fashion statement or you belong to this school of uh, of you know meditation because uh, it it comes with the uh, most fashionable leggings uh, and you become a vegetarian because all of your friends are doing it and I also have nothing against vegetarian and vegetarianism even though my diet skews towards uh, healthy uh, you know happy animals and the products that they deliver so i do I do think that we can model uh, this extended parish life um, on maybe maybe there are some lessons that that can be learned, but I think that it's also important to focus on what would make them different uh, and I think um, one one area is using existing spaces rather than uh, creating a sort of posh new city center or gym and buying all the the latest equipment and espresso machines instead just using the the freely available parks as a meeting place for potlucks i opened my essay with a a line from the book of isaiah which i think was read uh, on easter this year which is you know why do you spend on uh, that which is not food why do you labor Uh, for that which does not nourish or something to this effect where so much of where people are spending their money these days uh, is on the non-essentials and there's that word again that keeps coming up in the context of the the quarantine and the lockdown is you know essentials only so when we're talking about well what's really essential uh, is it the the snacks from the center aisle of the grocery store is it going to the gym and, and spending two hundred and fifty dollars a month for a, a high-end uh, subscription to a, a fitness program, or is it really going out on walks with your family and uh, and and close loved ones, people in your community? So I think that this is something that we should continue to uh, to do as a but but broaden it out as we start to become, in my opinion, a little bit more sane about the the relative yeah risks um, start to you know spend time after church at the park and make that a more ritualized thing
0: yes actually I, one of the things that uh, at saint elias when that when it's the the feast of the patron um they always eat after divine liturgy mm-hmm. uh, this is the church that i go to with father sebastian carnazzo so some of you will know um the, the scripture scholar, and so I've been going to his church. But the first time I went, it was the feast of Saint Elias, and so they always transfer that from the church hall, which is where they normally eat after the divine liturgy. And there's a rotor of people organizing that, which in itself is pretty good for a small parish community. But they always um, go out to the park and have a picnic on the feast day, and it's something that he organizes. Um, and I I love this idea of just making use of ordinary facilities. I, c- coming back to my old mentor, actually D- David Birtwistle. He um, so he was in his sixties when I when I met him. But he always used to laugh about all the equipment that people used to get and, and you know to do sports and he he was very much you know in my day he's one of those sort of people but he just said all we used to do was put on a pair of white plimsolls and you know a pair of grey flannels did for everything you played tennis in it you, um, and and basically you didn't think about the equipment you just went out and, d- and did it and it, it was very much. Um, you didn't spend as much on doing on uh, doing these activities and people did a lot more he would he would mm-hmm. talk about this right down to the um you know at all st- st- levels of society um so people the, in in england of course there's a great tradition of going out and walking um and exercising going out into the farmland where the, there, is a, there is a traditional right to go on public footpaths but this really is made use of. A lot of people do it um, and enjoy it. It's, it's not an extreme sport in which you get kitted up in the, you know, the, latest, uh, the latest equipment and clothes. Everybody goes out and walks and will happily walk 10 miles very often just in an ordinary pair of you know, uh, comfortable shoes.
1: Right. This could be part of the whole reset is a turn away from especially spectator sports in the big arenas uh, where we valorize the extreme uh, talent, often at the expense of just more ordinary physical ability. And we sort of downplay um, our own inheritance as incredible movers. And, you know, that's that's everyone's endowment uh, or, or, you know, virtually everyone can get out and move in these ways. Uh, and even just some of the, the team sports that people play uh, with all the equipment and all the, the hyper specialization, uh, so many injuries come out of this. Uh, whereas if you if you take a, a more well, whether it's walking or um, you know in the the practice that I have, again modeled after uh, an older practice called la method naturelle, uh, the natural method of George Hebert, he writes about this, that in his time, uh, you had basically, everyone had attempted to solve the problem of of physical education from uh, from people in in sports, to the military, to journalism, but no one had really gotten a handle on it because they were approaching it from these specialized fields, rather than from just a field of, of physical education. And so I think that uh, there are some principles that need to be rediscovered and and sort of relearned and and taught in a pedagogical way. But most of us at least still have some memory of what it's like to move naturally when we were kids. You know, we played on the the rocks and climbed trees uh, and just moved our bodies in ways that were meant to, but no longer are required to because of all the, the ways that things are just provided for us
0: hmm yes very interesting well charlie I, we've we're about as an hour there so i think we'll uh, there's many more things we could discuss i'm going to post your newsletter on the way of beauty uh, podcast page um so you can read that as well as uh, as well as you're listening to this and watching this now um and uh I think that there's, there's more material there that we could we could talk about. Um, as usual, we uh, branched off into areas that we hadn't anticipated. Uh, very interestingly, I thought. Um, is there anything that you'd like to just finish with before we we um, close? I think the walking
1: topic is one that we certainly could dedicate a whole episode to, and I'd like to. Um, I think that on one of our podcasts it was. Shortly before, I did the 50-mile the march uh, around the three bridges of San Francisco Bay. Oh, yeah. And this is sort of inspired by two American presidents. The first was Teddy Roosevelt, who first issued this directive to his army officers, saying that basically, in a even in peacetime, you should be able to walk 50 miles uh, spread out over three days. Uh, and he also required them to run the last mile and sprint the last 200 meters. Uh, JFK revived it in the, the 1960s. Um, he wrote an essay for Sports Illustrated when he was president elect, talking about the soft American, how we become softened. And that was basically Roosevelt's theme as well uh, that we need to restore a vigorous life, a strenuous life. Uh, and walking, you know, even a, a couple of miles is a good way to get started, whatever level you're at. Uh, and I think that the uh, for me you know I've, I've found that doing the fifty mile march I've done it um, once the the full thing I, I got stopped on my initial attempt after forty miles because the Golden Gate Bridge was closed after six thirty uh, this time it turns out that they opened it up until nine thirty uh, during the the spring and summertime so we got there before we even had to mm-hmm. but I walked uh, with with uh, Ben Brown another yeah. mutual uh, mutual friend and yeah. what i what I find is that Walking is one of the most versatile movements. Uh, It can be picked apart and and sort of uh, improved in terms of your efficiency. Uh, But regardless of how you walk, it's it's good for you and makes you more resilient. Um, The more you do it, the better. And it's very hard to walk so much that you hurt yourself. I think uh, we... You know, 50 miles, you can come close, but, <laughs> but anything short of 10 and most people are going to be okay. So uh, if you want to uh, learn more about the techniques for walking longer distances, I do have a, a, a guide um the, the sort of how to walk uh, better, faster, stronger, lighter, uh, and it's based on biomechanics and uh, a little bit of the, the natural method techniques. Plus some other modalities more more recently developed by people like Esther Gokhale, who's an expert on posture uh, posture and alignment. And she has a technique called glide walking that if you uh, have never done it before, it'll change the way you walk. So you can get that if you sign up for my email list uh, or just email David or, or drop a line in the comments with your email address and I'd be happy to send it to
0: you. Give us your website address again, where people can
1: go. It's a natural method.com. Okay. I'm not claiming that it's the natural method. There are many methods. Uh, I think it was uh, Thoreau who said of methods. There are many, but of principles, but few. And so this is just a natural method.com. Uh, there's also some other guides there that are uh, free PDFs for email subscribers, including the, the ever popular poor man's paleo guide to, Shopping and eating on ten dollars or less, and uh, butter is butter is a okay on the poor man's paleo protocol.
0: For any diet, yeah. And the great thing about walking is that you can do that anywhere. You don't need a gym for this. And in California, we're blessed with a particularly this part of California with a climate which really is just meant for getting out and just enjoying being outside and the beautiful uh, scenery that we have. So Charlie, uh, great to talk to you. Thanks once again. Good to talk to you, David. See you in the
1: garden, I hope, soon.
0: (laughs) I hope so. Let's hope there's an end to this. God bless you and goodbye. God bless.